Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 130 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new Ridley Scott movie, Exodus Gods and Kings. And this will involve spoilers, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got Robert M. Price. He's a former Baptist minister who holds PhDs in systematic theology and the New Testament. He's the author of such books as The Amazing Colossal Apostle, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, and Killing History, Jesus in the No-Spin Zone, a refutation of Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus. Bob is also the host of the podcasts The Bible Geek and The Lovecraft Geek. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Great to be here. And also joining us today is Richard Carrier. He holds a PhD in ancient history from Columbia and is the author of such books as Not the Impossible Faith, Proving History, and On the Historicity of Jesus, which argues that Jesus Christ may never have existed. So, Richard, welcome to the show. Hello. Yeah, great to be here. All right. So I'm really happy to have Bob and Richard back on the show. They also joined us back in episode 108 to review Darren Aronofsky's movie Noah. And that was one of our most popular discussions ever. So definitely go check that out if you missed it. But now let's talk about Exodus, Gods and Kings. Now, this is definitely not the first movie to tackle the story of Moses. So, Bob, why don't we start with you and have you just tell us what other movies have tackled this story before and what did you think of them? Well, I absolutely love uh, the Charlton Heston, Yul Brynner, Ten Commandments. Uh, that had a real sense of the uh, mythic, epic character of the whole story. Uh, there's not naturalistic color as there is in uh, Gods and Kings. There is this great technicolor. Uh, Moses has this impossible hairdo that looks just like the uh, old uh, pictures and sculptures of him, and that's exactly as it should be. Uh, and the I think that it just got everything right. It just shows, I, in fact, I would say that the Ten Commandments is the definitive version of the Exodus more so than the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wonder why the heck anybody ever thought to do another Moses movie. But there was one in the 70s with Burt Lancaster, which I don't remember much about, but I saw it at the time, and I thought that they made one big mistake here. They're trying to make it look as if it might have happened. And uh, it just fell flat in my subjective opinion. And I'd say the same problem attaches to this one, though it is spectacular to look at. Uh, and uh, yet uh, it seemed to me it, it didn't do well. It, there are creative changes from the Bible, like uh, uh, the uh, notion that Moses, having been a general for Pharaoh, as Josephus has, uh, when he decided to try to set Israel free, he decided to do it by conventional uh, means, a war of attrition, and then God says, now we don't need to do that, and then the plagues start. Eh, it's uh, interesting, but uh, it's not an interesting variation in the way the Noah movie was. And eventually, I, I figured, well, everybody knows what's coming here. It, it just became tedious to me. And yeah. I guess this is subjective. But I, I think everything Bob said sounds completely correct to me in terms of my evaluation of Exodus, Gods and Kings. I, I mean, I have even harsher things to say, I think, about it, uh, even aesthetically, cinematically, just in terms of as a movie. Um, I thought it was the worst Ridley Scott film ever made, frankly. But apparently, I guess there was four hours of film, and he was forced to cut it down to two and a half. And and that explains a lot of the things I had problems with it, is where they had these interesting storylines that they just dropped, and this did nothing with them. Uh, and it just seemed very, like, badly written. Like, there's very little character development. There are right. characters like Sigourney Weaver's character that's just, she seems to have no purpose in the film. And I, I'm sure there must be, like, a half an hour of footage of scenes with her that they just cut or something. I mean, it, it, it's just an edit hatchet job, really. So uh, there's just lots of things wrong with it. And a lot of the, all the interesting stuff, I thought, was the, the funny thing is I was getting into it when I was watching it. I was like, oh, this, this is kind of interesting. All the stuff they're making up, this backstory about Moses and Pharaoh being together, uh, being, you know, buddies and, you know, you know basically uh, sort of ad not adopted brothers, but practically. And, uh, and this whole thing, but, um, 
that, that, that was a great storyline. And having the storyline with the Viceroy and his elite corruption and, you know, living voluptuously while the slaves were suffering and, and the whole social justice to Moses, like that was an interesting storyline. But then they just completely dropped it and went nowhere with it. Uh, and, and it's like all these things were cool. But as soon as it started tracking the Bible, then it just got stupid and boring. It was just like, like the, oh, we have to do the 10 plagues. Let's plod through these. You know, it was, it was that kind of feeling. And then even when they got to the big scene, you know, of course, the crossing of the, the Red Sea and the, the great tidal wave and all of that stuff, they completely ruined it with this sort of hack writer concept of they get down to just Moses and Pharaoh by themselves and this sort of Mexican standoff with swords. And, and you're, I mean, as soon as that happened, it's like, come on, what is this, a sci-fi movie? I mean, this is like, uh, and I mean, you know, Siffy sci-fi movie. Yeah. The terrible, uh, it was just a terrible way to write this narrative. It's like, that's so cliche. And then, of course, when the wave kills everybody, the only two people to swim to the surface and survive are Moses and Pharaoh, even though this, this huge tidal wave like crushes their bodies. Like you, you visually see it, it's, it would liquefy any actual human. But no, they're the only ones that survive. And it was just so like, oh, come on, you know, it was these kinds of writing decisions that were just really dumb, cliche things. It was just very lazy. And there was, there was a lot of that throughout the movie. Okay, so I guess uh, there's going to be a lot to criticize here. So let's uh, start at the very beginning with the title crawl stuff, uh, which presents this idea that the Jewish people are slaves in Egypt and they're building the pyramids and all these great monuments. Uh, Richard, as a historian, uh, how historically accurate is this basic setup? <laughs> well, as history, it's not accurate at all. Uh, we, ha we have actually no evidence that the Jews were ever slaves in Egypt. Um, so that's just something that was made up in Jewish literature centuries later. So, so no, I, I mean, even in terms of like displaying Egyptian history and stuff, it was very simplistic and anachronistic in the way they did it, um, which that in itself doesn't bug me so much. Uh, I was much more annoyed as a connoisseur of cinema at just the bad writing and the, the lousy character development and, and all of that. Um, so, but uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it kind of failed as history, but more importantly, it failed as a representation of the biblical text because there's a lot of really cool stories in Exodus that they didn't have at all, like the wizard battle in Pharaoh's court, right? Yeah. It's, Things like that, just not in there. And, and, and they're, they're trying to have it both ways, like trying to make it the miracles be naturalistically explained. But then as naturalistic explanations, they make no scientific sense. So they, they can't, it's like they couldn't decide whether to go full miracle or full realistic naturalistic explanation. And so they tried to hedge the line in between and it made it kind of terrible. They should have gone one or the other. Yeah, this, this movie does have kind of a strange relationship with rationalism. And we see Moses at the beginning of the movie being sort of a, a rationalist skeptic. Yeah. Um, how is, is that completely anachronistic? Uh, would there have been rationalists in the oh, court of the Pharaoh in biblical that's times? That's a good question. I, I was thinking about that too. Uh, like, especially when they have Moses, like Moses is the skeptic until he has the vision of the, the little petulant godchild. And then he's a suddenly he's a believer. And then it's his wife who's trying to convince him that it was just a delusion from getting hit on the head with a rock. And I thought that was like exactly the reverse of what would have happened in any real conversation, because the way they depicted it, Moses was a highly educated elite. And she was your, your average shepherd girl who would have no education at all. And so for him to have gone up on the sacred mountain and to come down with this vision of God, she would be the one trying to convince him that it was real. And he's the one who would be trying to argue that it was the rock hitting him on the head. Uh, so it was kind of the reverse of how things would work in antiquity. With the question of were there rationalists like that, I can't say whether there would have been in 1300 BC. We don't have the kind of records, I think. Um, although there is evidence of rationalistic thinking in some of the early Sumerian literature of the same period. So it's entirely plausible. And when we get to Greece and Rome, of course, we have like a lot of the elite would rationalize away miracles and, and things like that and, and use the exact same kind of discussion of stuff. But it, it was the educated elite who were able to think in these terms because they had more experience and knowledge with it. But the average person on the street would like, oh, you saw God and he spoke to you. That that must be for real. You know, it was yeah. that was the that was that would have been the order of things. And, and they just they didn't quite get that right. And I thought that was strange. And it was also, again, to get to the whole idea of not following the Bible. They had this whole storyline with Moses being all angsty about leaving his family behind, which is weird because in the Exodus story, he takes his family with him. And I don't understand why they changed that. I mean, it was just, it was strange. Would it, would it be safe, Richard, for, if, if there were rationalists, could they just poo-poo the augers and that kind of stuff the way that Moses does here without facing any repercussions like blasphemy <laughs> charges or anything like that? 
Oh, well, again, I can't speak to 1300 BC Egypt. I don't know what kind of laws or principles they had then. Uh, my expertise is Greco-Roman period. Um, and then, yes, for sure, uh, you could get away with that. Um, the, the things that would get you into trouble, and only in some cases, and it would depend on the environment. Like in Athens, the, there was a kind of democratic hostility towards teaching that the gods don't exist. You know, so that's what Socrates got on the bad end of that stick, for example. But that's actually an outlier. When you see like the Roman period, the idea you have Cicero writing this whole treatise about him being an augur himself and, and basically trying to toe the line between, well, it's all baloney, but, <laughs> but it serves an important social function. It was very Confucian of him to say that. But uh, it's very clear that he himself was a practicing auger, but didn't believe a, a thing of it. Like, he was a total rationalist. He didn't think that was real. Um, and, uh, and But he would also, at the same time, endorse kind of these stoic attempts to kind of rationalistically explain how augury could actually work somehow. Um, but I don't even think he bought it. And I, so I, I don't think you'd get into too much trouble pulling that, really, necessarily. Um, but you would have this variety of belief in the augers as to how much you would trust them. Um, but there, there are famous stories that tried to, to combat that skepticism. You have a famous one in the history of Rome where one of these Roman generals got sick of the augers and, and thought it was baloney. And it was, they, they used to, you do augury with chickens and the, the behavior of the chickens, how the chickens would eat or not would tell them things. And, and it was a question of, it would be good luck if the chicken ate or something like that. And, uh, the chickens wouldn't eat. And this, this general was absolutely certain that they were going to be victorious. And he says, well, then let the chickens drink. And they threw them in the ocean to drink. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, they, they lose, and it's like, oh, this is, see, the augury works. Uh, but, of course, that's myth, right? So they make up that story specifically to sell augury as a, a genuine uh, thing. Well, I mean, Bob, for people who aren't so familiar with the Exodus story in the Bible, could you just talk about a bit about the, the awesome wizard duel that Richard was talking about and how else, just how the setup of this movie was different from what we would read in Exodus? Well, God gives Moses signs to convince the Israelites who appear not to have remembered their God, as the movie says, because uh, Moses even says, who do I say sent me? Even he doesn't know. Uh, who am I talking to here? And he just gives them the I am thing. And, and he says, tell them that Yahweh has uh, sent you. And, and th this ought to convince them. And he... Uh, is able to whiten his skin uh, as if he has leprosy and then return it to normal. And uh, his staff turns in, his shepherd's staff turns into a snake and so forth, very much like a Zoroaster story where he's about to go see Prince Vistashpa and uh, is given the ability by Ahura Mazda to create fireballs and that convinces him, well, um, <laughs> he, he does this and then uh, does some of the same stuff to convince Pharaoh. And the the uh, the great uh, thing is that uh, this is so ironic in odd ways that he casts the uh, staff down and it turns into a serpent. But uh, the uh, the sorcerer priests of Pharaoh are able to do the same thing with their staffs. And there's no embarrassment there uh, that, yeah, they have magic powers, but God has more. And so then Moses' serpent staff eats all the other ones. <laughs> well, not only is it hilarious, but to see what fundamentalists do with this is really a scream. I guess I shouldn't beat on them like this, but they're rationalists when it uh, on everything else but orthodox stuff in the Bible and cannot bring themselves to admit that Pharaoh's magicians could have done this. And uh, so they're uncomfortable even with Moses uh, having a uh, morphing uh, staff like this. So I've actually read more than once, they say, well, what Moses did was to throw his staff on the floor and no one had noticed before this point that it was uh, a, a stuffed, rigid snake made into a staff uh, i mean that that <laughs> it's like they they don't want to believe leviathan behemoth or like kaijus in the bible <laughs> and say, well really that's uh that's a crocodile and an ox and so forth it's very bizarre like miracles oh yeah full speed ahead but these other weird things are satyrs mentioned on isaiah no no that's just goats and uh, it's very odd. So there's, again, that kind of weird waffling uh, and uh, 
on on both sides of the supernaturalism issue. I, I don't, and and so I can imagine them putting that into this this movie, but they seemed a little too. Uh, like, for instance, God doesn't simply appear out of the burning bush. Uh, you're really left with the option of thinking that maybe it is just some wise kid uh, or he's just having hallucinations. I guess they figured if you pulled a, like the miracle contest thing, kind of like uh, Peter and Simon Magath in uh, early. Yeah, sure that 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 would just be too uh, absurd to the modern viewer. OK, so you guys mentioned that. Uh, this movie, it presents uh, Moses as if he grew up as the best friend of the Pharaoh and is one of his army generals. Uh, how much basis does that have in the Bible? And if not, where else might they have gotten it from? Well, I'd be curious. Bob mentioned Josephus says something about this. Yeah, that uh, that Moses, since Pharaoh uh, must have thought he was an Egyptian and uh it's not clear whether he understood that his daughter had adopted a baby, though not knowing that uh, he wouldn't have known it was a Hebrew baby, or if he somehow thought that it was his own natural grandson. Uh, you'd think the former, but it never really says. And uh, th then the fact that this pharaoh dies before Ma Moses is an adult and is uh, contesting with a pharaoh that uh, they figure, well, Moses and this pharaoh, Ramses, it's thought, uh, would have grown up in Pharaoh's house. It's a, uh, it's very likely they would have been pretty much uh, brothers or foster brothers, which is a, a reasonable inference, but it never says anything like that. I kept thinking of Thor and Loki. Uh, from the, the Thor movies, it's almost exactly the same idea and the same, uh, the rivalry and yet love between them and so on. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's all. They inserted all that. That's not from the Bible. Mm. Okay, well, Bob, you mentioned uh, Moses whitening his skin, and uh, there was a whole bunch of skin whitening going on in this, uh, in this movie. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I, I guess a lot has been said about this, but... um. I don't know what you guys think about the casting of almost exclusively a Caucasian actors for the the main parts in this movie. Well, they they did for the yeah right for the main parts. I mean, they threw in some mixed race people, various races, and the sort of random people who die here and there, right? Um, but yeah, all the leads are your stock white people. In this day and age, I mean, there's so many great actors of various races that that would not there's no reason to do that i mean there's huge big name actors you could cast you know black actors for example that would be well there would be draws you know box office draws and that was their excuse is they needed box office draws and come on you know there's lots oh. of lots of black actors who would be big draws um so they they totally could now in in reality the the race of egyptians was very diverse i mean they were like their average skin color would have been you know midway between white and black but there would have been people of all different colors because it was really a trade center. There was a lot of uh, interracial marriage going on in Egypt. So, so their races would be all over the place. But to have every single lead character totally on the white end uh, would not be historically accurate at all. Uh, they should have uh, made uh, Idris Elba Pharaoh. Uh, that he oh, Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, I, though the, the guy they picked, I thought looked and acted well for the yes. kind of pharaoh they made him. He wasn't a strong man like Yul Brynner. He was sort of a... Uh, he didn't have much motivation beyond narcissism and cruelty. <laughs> and he, I thought that was done well, but I couldn't get over the fact that he looked like Cameron Diaz in a bald wig. <laughs> I thought, what? Is that her? I it Amazingly uh, distracted me. Uh, but I thought it was good. Yeah, well, I mean, Richard mentioned, too, I mean, it was really distracting. Not only were so many of the leading roles white actors, but they were white actors that you recognize really, you know, it's sort of in your face that, every, you know, you're, you're trying to suspend disbelief and believe that this is this court in ancient Egypt and every actor is somebody you recognize and somebody who's white. And uh, it, it was just it was, yeah, the casting was just kind of a train wreck. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it would have been far more interesting if they'd done it in a more realistic way, and I think would have gotten a bigger audience draw, I would expect, right? It would have, instead of getting criticism, because you know how Rupert Murdoch, they, the film got criticized for this, and Rupert Murdoch 
gotten sort of a Twitter battle over it, where he said, uh, "It's like, well, since when are Egyptians not white? All the Egyptians I know are white." And like, Ooh, yeah, well, you're Rupert Murdoch, of course. <laughs> you're kind of being selective who you hang out with, but <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, uh, no, but that that kind of thing it turned out badly for them. Whereas if they had gone with a more diverse cast, um, I think then they would have been getting praise for it rather than criticism would have gotten the movie more attention. And you know, why not? I, I just don't see why they would be so obsessed with with going all white cast. Okay, I mean, Bob, you mentioned that the Pharaoh. I mean. He was interesting as a character in one sense in that he, you, at least I genuinely believe that he loved his son. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is that from the Bible or was that a, did they uh, enhance that for the movie? Yeah, they, they did. Uh, it, it, they may have gotten the idea from uh, Yul Brynner and his reaction to the death of his son uh, in the canonical uh, version. Uh, but uh, there, I think the seed for that is that when, Moses makes the 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 uh, threat that this is what's going to happen if you don't let us go. The firstborn from uh, the most humble shepherd to Pharaoh himself is going to feel this, and so I guess they figure, yeah, that is too good to leave out. So we got to do something with it and have a reaction, and that's a pretty good adaptation, I think. Yeah, that that plays into what I was thinking. Like in terms of the the backstory they made up, the fiction they made up. Up to like the first 30, 40 minutes of the film, I was like, oh, this this could be a good movie. This is quite interesting. And it's just right at that point, by the time they got him connected with the shepherd's life, uh, and then they started going on track with the Bible, that's when it got just sort of stupid and boring for me. Uh, and where things just, the narratives just started falling apart, and it's just, it, it was a lot of time wasting and stuff. Um, that's when the movie started to get disappointing, and it was exactly when I expected the movie to get more interesting, right? Um so I, I just, it was just bad writing, I think. Though, as you point out, if they cut out an hour and a half of it, mm-hmm. who knows what uh, it might have been so different that it could have made more sense and been more interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, although they, that doesn't explain everything. Like when they have, like you look at the Bible in Exodus when Moses murders the Egyptian guard. Exodus gives a reason for that. He sees a, yeah. a, a, a guard beating a, a slave and then he's driven to kill the, the beater of the slave. Like, you have a whole, you know, slavery, oppression, social justice narrative there that actually makes a lot of sense, even resonates today. Yeah. But in, in the movie, they didn't have any explanation. He was just, Moses himself was walking along, a guard yeah. mistook him for a slave, and just said, hey, stop, you know, yo, slave, stop. And I think one guy hits him, not even very hard, on the back, because he wasn't stopping, and he turns around and kills the other guy, like, not even the guy who hit him, and just and just kills him, and you're like, why did Moses just kill that guy? Like, it, these guys are, like, working for Moses. Like, he could have turned around and said, hey, it's me, it's Moses. <laughs> like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I was puzzled by uh, that, too. It, it made and, no and sense. The dropping of the ball with the good dramatic stuff in the original, because yeah. that, Moses says, hey, I, I am a Hebrew. I, I can't live with this, and kills the guy. And then the next day, he goes out again and sees two Hebrews fighting and uh, says, hey, you guys are both Hebrews. You shouldn't be fighting. Oh, you're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian the other day? Uh-oh. I mean, that is great, but not in the movie. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, there are a lot of good stories in the, in the original material that they just didn't adapt at all. And, and, and what they did adapt was just completely messed up. It didn't make any sense mm-hmm. as, as writing. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the the ten plagues. I guess in some previous movies they've cut out some of the plagues because they figured ten was really <laughs> kind of overkill. <laughs> it's uh, a bit. Yeah. What do you, I guess, Bob? What did you think of the decision to include all ten plagues in this movie? Well, they did uh, do it pretty quickly. It could have been more tedious than it was, uh, so I didn't <laughs> mind that uh, too much. But that meant that they couldn't have the back and forth between Pharaoh and Moses, which is kind of interesting. When uh, that uh, no matter what is happening, it, Egypt is coming down around the Pharaoh's ears, and he won't let him go. And the fact that God tells Moses in advance, "Look, you're going to go demand." freedom 
but he's, I will harden his heart. So he's irrationally stubborn. And again and again, he's like, he's making Pharaoh into a punching bag so the nations will know that I am the Lord and all that. That's a, again, a really interesting thing, but it's gone totally. Uh, and yeah. in, uh, in the Charlton Heston version, they kind of rationalized it and made it believable that he was so, uh, pig-headed about it and it, it worked and but he had the moses uh uh pharaoh interaction almost none of that here and it's especially strange since they made more of a connection between moses and pharaoh yeah yeah and then that gets into the whole the to trying to have it both ways with the miracles and not I mean, the, the naturalistic explanations just were not plausible at all. I mean, they had the, they said that, you know, the, the, the numbers of frogs that were plaguing them made no sense because those frogs have to, the only way those frogs could exist is if the mommy and daddy frogs were zillions of them and had shit to eat. And it's like, what, what were they eating? You know, so it's like, how could you have that many frogs? It's not possible to have that many frogs. Um, but then when the frogs all die, then the flies or the maggots grow in the frogs and that that's what explained the flies. But then they had the plague that killed all the animals, all the livestock, but suddenly there's no flies, like maggots don't like cow meat anymore. It's, it was, uh, even scientifically, it didn't make sense. Actually, Richard, speaking of, I mean, the Egyptians, they had this scientific advisor who was attempting to explain all the plagues, basically in yeah. scientific terms. <laughs> oh, that was great. I really did like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think he says that, that it's like a new theory or something at the time that uh, insects spread plague. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is that That's true. That's a good catch. Um, well, again, I, I can't speak to what was being theorized 1300 BC in Egypt. Um, but by the time of the early Roman Empire, yes, there were some people theorizing that there were essentially what we would call microorganisms that were not visible to the human eye that could be transmitted through physical means through, through gnats or other objects and stuff. So they had a contamination theory based, and, and they would even call these small things Invisible, like animals that were smaller than the human eye could see. Uh, so there were people like with a primitive germ theory, and it was a theory, like no one had proved it. Um, but it was going around, and you have like Plutarch who writes about medicine, and he includes it as, oh, this is one of many theories of where disease comes from. It's as plausible as any. Um, so, so that did exist then. I don't know if it would have existed in 1300 BC, but it's at least plausible enough that if, you know, there's, we don't have any literature from the period on it. Why not throw that in there? I mean, it would be that would at least be plausible to have that going on. So that didn't that didn't offend me as a historian in any case. <laughs> All right. So what did you guys think? I mean, Richard mentioned the decision to make God or God's messenger or whatever this eleven year old boy in this movie. Um, what did you guys think of that decision? I, they didn't do anything with it. Um, I mean, they really made him into like a petulant, angry kind of immature child like the way he acted and everything is like whoa this who would want to follow this god um well that's the they, way god is in the old testament often yeah but that's you would play on that right you would you would yeah. make that a point of the film and you would yeah. you would develop it and they, they just really didn't it's like um it was just a throwaway thing it was just a, a a thing that happened in the film and and rather than developing something like a narrative about this, like oh, like God is really like this, you know, or, or doing something with it, um, they ju they just didn't do really anything with it. It was just uh, sort of a throwaway interaction between this little child God and Moses. It's not unbiblical exactly because in possibly in the Gospel of Mark and in various so oh, I think the the Acts of John and and other. Uh, early Christian Apocrypha, you have the idea that at least Christ or a an angel appears as a child. And, uh, yeah, uh, that's, uh, that struck me as kind of saving it. But again, I, I think it was. Oh, yeah. That reminds me too, because this goes back to the stuff they must have cut out, because there is a line in the movie where Moses says he's tired of talking to God's messenger. He says that to the yeah. kid. Um, but they never developed that. They, that. That was just like a line left in, but they clearly must have developed that point at some scene that they cut out where this is, this is like the Metatron or something. It's the, the angel who speaks for God. Cause that's in, in, you know, later Jewish lore, God could never speak to you because you would, it would just vaporize your body if you heard God's voice. So God could only speak to you through agents, through angels. So every time you saw God or spoke to him, you were really spoken to God's messenger and it was usually the Metatron or one of these archangels. Um, the, the movie Dogma makes fun of this, but it's an actual part of Jewish angelology. 
Uh, and so it looks like that was a part of the movie explaining that this kid is just the, this archangel that is the messenger of God. But uh, who, how, who knows how much of that stuff ended up on the cutting room floor. And the only hint of it is this one line that Moses says. And I was like, well, wait a minute. This kid's a messenger? You didn't establish that. What's going on? Yeah. And Moses knows it? Like, where, where did that happen? I missed that. Uh, uh, bad editing, I guess, in that case. Uh, bad decisions as to what to cut. But maybe they had no choice. You do at least have the boy the first time uh, appear beside the burning bush. Where yeah. it's, uh, in the Bible, uh, the, uh, the voice comes from the bush. But then later on, as you say, uh, the rabbis, well, even biblical authors are saying, nah, nah, it must have been the angel of the Lord. And uh, so you have that like redactional thing to distance God from it. He's too transcendent for that. But you're right. You're, you're left guessing what is going on here. Okay. So then there's the line when Pharaoh um, shows his boy's body to Moses and he says something to the effect of what kind of fanatic would follow a god who would do something like this um, <laughs> yeah. what did you guys think of that moment in the movie I mean it, again if they'd done something with it like having Pharaoh say that after he had just been killing all kinds of kids and yeah. families and stuff doesn't make a whole lot of sense because uh, this would be more like a guy would say wow your god is awesome <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. like he, can kill, he can kill more kids than I can this is great yeah. Um, but to suddenly have Pharaoh be like this humanistic philosopher suddenly doesn't fit. Like, I can see how that you can build the contradiction in a character like that, but you'd have to build that contradiction. Like, it'd have to be explicable, or it'd have to be a part, something about this, the conflict and the character that you play on narratively, or something like that. It's just bad cinema to just suddenly have him flip from one, like, suddenly from a, a tyrant who's has no trouble killing people to get his way to suddenly being this humanistic philosopher who thinks that's barbaric um, doesn't make a lot of sense. So, again, that's just bad writing in that case, I think. I mean, certainly just killing innocent children seems like pretty much the prototypical example of something that's not morally justified, right? But this is God doing this in this story. Um, I mean, yeah. how, how do you think that religious people reading this story through the ages um, dealt with that or made sense of that? I, well, I mean, the the way they make sense of it, of course, in Exodus originally is that, well, the the original Pharaoh, the earlier Pharaoh, killed the firstborn of the Jews. Therefore, it's just recompense to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians. But that's just like, you know, Pakistani villages, when a girl gets raped, the punishment is to go rape the sister of the rapist. Yeah. It's like that, that's not justice at all, right? That's right. Uh, that's actually quite horrible. Um, so, so the justice makes no sense internally, but it did make sense in the medieval mindset, the, the primitive mindset of this time. Um, but how do religious people now explain it? Because they, they can't really consistently say, oh yeah, it's totally justified to kill innocent kids of people who had nothing whatsoever to do with killing other innocent kids. I mean, it, I don't see how they hook it up, but maybe you run into some justifications, Bob? Well, implicitly, and that's all I, I can say, I've never heard them actually wrestle with it, but I suspect they would say what they do about hell, which of course is even much, much more fiendish, where they say, look, uh, God doesn't just stick you in hell. He's giving you the option of getting out of it, and he wants you to get out of it. If you're there, it's your fault. And the same thing here, Moses told Pharaoh, you can avoid this in a simple way by letting us get the heck out of here, and he doesn't. Well, look, you were warned. But uh, that doesn't exactly fly, because again, uh, in, in the Bible, God says he is going to make Pharaoh's heart so hard that he'll be irrational in his stubbornness. So uh, God has predestined the whole situation. And I also, I suspect, as with the slaughter of the Canaanites, which never happened, but it does in the Bible, uh, they, they don't view them as real human beings. Uh, it's it's like the orcs in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> They're just a race of evil, and so really, who the hell cares what happens to them? Well, I, that that brings up one of the anachronisms I thought in in the film uh, Exodus: Gods and Kings, where um, they made it out as being that they'll get the Egyptian people to persuade 
pharaoh to change his mind as if this was a democracy like (laughs) that's not how ancient egypt worked like it doesn't matter like why would you why why kill the firstborn of these people who are living under a tyranny who don't even get to elect their leader they they have no say whatsoever in what pharaoh does i mean it it doesn't make any sense at all like they they can't really be blamed for the original pharaoh killing the the sons of the jews because most of the egyptians would have either had nothing to do with it or they would have been under the gun essentially like you you couldn't refuse to do it what what are you going well what's going to happen you're going to get killed by pharaoh uh, so this is a tyranny and so sort of punishing kids who had nothing to do with it of people under a tyranny who have very little or that they can do yeah. um doesn't make any sense morally so uh I, it seems to me like this would be an exceedingly difficult thing to struggle with uh with for someone of a modern moral mindset and you see that in the way that they're treating like the the line they throw into pharaoh's mouth that you mentioned earlier but also moses like saying oh this is horrible why would i follow a god who does this but they don't go anywhere with that like they don't do anything with it um so so it's like they have like just the hint of something interesting that could have happened in terms of conversation or something uh but it doesn't go anywhere in the movie and and that's that's just so disappointing i mean it seems like maybe they want to go in that direction i mean there's there's a shot um, of that kid uh, in front of us, uh, the clouds gathering. Where I mean, he looks like the kid out of the ring. I mean, he's so freaking scary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and um, I have to. I'm. I can't believe you would put that shot together and not, you know, intend that this is an. Ev- you're telling a story about an evil god, but maybe, you know, you don't want that. You don't want to hammer on that because then it's going to alienate a giant portion <laughs> of the audience. So you're kind of left in this with, this with this weird muddle of yeah of no point of view at all. Yeah, exactly. You you can't do that. You you have to pick a lane. Like you have to go you have to do something with it. Uh and and I think like if they'd done that like this god is creepy and scary. Like this is they'd turn, you know, Yahweh into like Cthulhu or something and I yeah. made the Jews into like a Cthulhu cult. Um like it, that at least would make it like terrifying in that sense. Um you could make a horror movie out of Exodus quite easily. Oh yeah. Uh, uh so um but of course you have to be committed to doing that. Like that has to be like, this is my message as an artist to do this. I mean, do you, do you guys think it's possible to, could you do a, a version of the Exodus story that was more or less faithful to the events of the Bible, but a modern person would still look at the actions of God and say, and and have God seem heroic somehow? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's tough to imagine. Because <laughs> yeah, you really do. You can't get away from the fact that God's taken it out, he's making the the Egyptian firstborn and really all of Egypt into a whipping boy, and he's preventing them from uh, repenting. Uh, so it, it really just, uh, and he does all this to glorify his own name, which is the real purpose of this. Like when uh, they get out of Egypt and Moses' brother-in-law, a father-in-law comes to the camp and he says, wow, I've heard what happened. Your God really is the God, all right? That's kind of the point, that uh, that God shows his greatness and the the people, well, it's just like uh, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. <laughs> okay, so um, right before the death of the firstborn, uh, Moses and and the Jews protect themselves by painting their doors with lamb's blood. Uh, is there some sort of story, like, uh, explanation well, for that? Well, yeah. <laughs> like, one of the most important stories in the entire book of Exodus that they just cut out. Yeah. <laughs> I was astonished by that, because I, I was thinking, like, like I approached Noah, um, and I think Noah was a much better movie than this, uh, yeah. on many levels, like, almost every level. Uh, Noah actually didn't assume that you, like, there's only a few things that they didn't explain. Like, most of the stuff they assumed you didn't know the story, and so they put some explanation in it or made stuff mysterious. Um, whereas, uh, in this, they had a few things that they just didn't explain at all, and I, I expect a movie to treat it like a fantasy source material, like you're doing Lord of the Rings or something, where you, even though the audience might already know the story, you have to include it. Uh, as just part of the narrative and but they never explained like why is he telling them to put the lamb's blood on the doors like what's the point of that maybe that's another scene that got cut but you have to really include that you can't just assume the audience knows this especially today in this global society where a lot of people don't know that story right yeah it's it's you just can't assume everybody does but yeah it's it's the whole passover narrative right is that the that god told moses that he would the only thing that would protect 
the firstborn children from the angel of death that God would send to go slay all of the children is if you mark your doors with the blood of the lamb. And this mark would, the angel would come and would see this mark and would pass over your household and not kill your children. And that's the whole Passover narrative. It's the whole fundamental foundation of one of the most important holy days in Jewish religion. Uh, so it, it's funny. It's like you're basically just saying, oh, we don't care about the Jewish audience. We're not going to play this. We're not going to explain Passover or any of that. We'll just cut that out. Uh, it just seemed like another example of just bad decision making in terms of how to write or edit the film. Uh, plus, you you have to think if God is all powerful, what is he <laughs> to do this for? Uh, I mean, like he does. They don't spread lamb's blood on the Israelite cows, uh, and they're all uh, yes, that's right. And uh, and uh, this originally is, of course, an attempt to to sanctify and provide a, a Jewish religious pedigree for what was and remains today in the Middle East, a common uh, practice where when a new house or building is erected, you uh, sacrifice a goat or a lamb or whatever and uh, brush blood on the lintels, uh, the lintel and the doorposts to um, sort of say to the grim reaper, uh, I gave it the office. <laughs> there, there has been a death here. You can skip us, and uh, because if you don't, it may be a family member. And this superstition still goes on, and uh, it survives almost entirely intact in the Bible. Because what does it avert? The destroyer. What is that? Uh, what well, we think of? Well, the angel of death. As if that's really any different. It, it's still the the. Uh, mysterious superstition, the supernatural stuff that is just dragged right into the story, almost unassimilated. But there's no need for it except to reverse engineer from the custom to come up with a new explanation for it. Yeah, yeah. You call that an etiological myth, yep. a, a myth that you write to explain some ritual you're already engaged in. Um, a lot of the Bible is that. Like, they already had these rituals they were engaged in, and they just wrote stories to explain where these rituals originated, but the stories were invented after the rituals. The rituals came first, and then you made up stories. Uh, and the Passover story is an example of that. Mm. And the whole thing with Moses being uh, put into the Nile, borrowed from Sargon of yeah. and others, uh, why pick that origin story? Well, because they're trying to explain how uh, Moses is, though it's obviously an Egyptian name, like Tutmos and Ramesses and all that. Uh, no, no, no. It didn't seem fitting to a later readership that the father of the Hebrew religion had an Egyptian name. Uh, and so they said, well, is there a Hebrew word that sounds kind of like this that it could have been based on? Well, Moshe, well, there's the word Masha to draw out of. Well, suppose as an infant, his life was saved by his being drawn out of uh, the river. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, they named him that. Uh, and it's uh, the whole thing is like a shaggy dog story leading to that. And, oh, okay. And so many of these stories are like that. It is absolutely <laughs> All right. So there's one other line I wanted to ask about where there's a part where Pharaoh says something to the effect of, if I were to free the slaves, it would have serious repercussions for our economy. Some, something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What did you guys think of that line in particular? <laughs> well, it was a little anachronistic. Um, they didn't really think of economics in those abstract terms like we do now. I mean, they could have had a conversation like that, but it wouldn't have been written in that kind of modern vernacular, I guess. Um, yeah, it was weird. It'd be bad for the economy. And Moses would be like, okay, first of all, what's an economy? And secondly, <laughs> How how would it be bad? I don't understand. Explain this to me. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they could have articulated reasons why it would be bad in, what, in a sense that we would call economically, but they would articulate the reasons. They wouldn't just say it's bad for the economy. That's a sentence that couldn't even have been uttered at that time. And concepts just weren't even there. Yeah, I should have just said, who's going to do all the work? You expect us <laughs> to do it? I mean, that would have been the, the issue. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, where's this money going to come from? You know, uh -huh. Look, we can do math. We're good at math. Let's add up all these slaves. Multiply it by a daily wage. Oh, that's a lot of money. That's going to come out of my pocket. Where's that going to come from? Ah. Uh, yeah, it would be in terms like that. 
you know, because the I guess the Bible story is that the pyramids were built by Jewish slave labor. But my understanding is that in actual history, they were built by skilled craftsmen who were relatively well paid and well treated. Well, it doesn't say they built the pyramids, despite the implication of the of yeah. the movie. It does say they built uh, Python and Ramses two storage cities, probably storing grain, uh, and and those were real cities. But uh, that doesn't mean that. Uh, yeah, ex- Exodus actually mentions that they were making brick. Uh, yeah, that, that what their main task was making brick, and in fact, one of the ways that Pharaoh tries to punish the Jewish slaves is to make it harder for them to make brick by not supplying them with the materials to make brick and forcing them to go get the materials themselves. This is all in the book of Exodus. Um, so what they were doing was, was brick making. And so, you know, their, your main building component, except for certain monumental architecture, was brick. So it was basically they were manufacturing your standard building material, um, which is really your, your bottom of the, the, building, uh, the building economy in that sense. But, but yeah, even then, bricklaying is a difficult, or, or not bricklaying, but manufacturing brick is not a simple skill. It is a craftsman skill. So uh, I think, yeah, they had a lot of slaves doing that, but um, you also had paid craftsmen doing that as well. So how it was in, in ancient Egypt, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but that is, they were very vague in the movie as to what the Jews were actually doing. Um, they, they, like they, have, they show lots of scenes of workers building stuff, but they never really clarify whether those are the Jews doing it or not. And when you see the Jews, it's, they keep referring it as the quarries that Moses goes to visit. So that like they're quarrying stone, but they never actually show them quarrying stone. I, I, I so it's, you know, it's kind of wishy-washy. I, I don't know. They could have done more with that too, as well. I think. Uh, that's a sign in the, uh, in Exodus that you're dealing with uh, fiction. That the fact that uh, Pharaoh has foreman, for instance, makes the obvious, even more obvious that he's got uh building plans that he wants carried out, he's not going to make it impossible for the, the <laughs> to do the work uh, as it, just to spite him. Uh, that'd be insane. He's just yeah. uh, a yeah. storybook villain, as as is the case <laughs> when he says he wants the uh, two Hebrew midwives uh, for, for a nation so big, he's afraid they're going to overthrow his government. There are two of them. And he says, now, I want you to kill the the male babies as soon as they're born, as if they're going to get away with that one time. And, uh, <laughs> and then they say to him, well, you know, uh, sorry, we're trying, but the uh, Hebrew women are so hardy and vigorous that they uh, give birth before we can even get there. In other words, uh, they don't use or need midwives. Well, then what the hell are you there for? <laughs> it's like uh, if you had, uh, if the Hebrews were all vegetarians, yeah, I'm the kosher butcher there. Uh, what, what the heck? And, and Colonel Click, he believes it. I mean, it's obviously just mockery uh, of uh, the Pharaoh and so forth. There's no way this is history. It's incredible. All right, so is there anything else you guys want to say about the parting of the Red Sea? I'll, I'll confess, I actually thought that was kind of awesome. I guess I have a weakness for uh, <laughs> cheesy sci-fi kind of stuff, as Richard was saying. But, it was uh, still better in the Charlton Heston version. It still looks pretty good, uh, even today. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, visually it was great. I mean, scientifically it was not plausible at all. Uh, they tried to have it, like, they tried to make multiple scientific explanations of it, like, they make it look like a tsunami in a way, but tsunamis wouldn't behave that way. They they have a Moses sees a comet like or a meteorite like fly through the atmosphere and crash somewhere, but that's like twelve hours before, so this like <laughs> that can't possibly explain the tsunami. And then during the scene, they show like you could see a, a whole bunch of tornadoes off in the distance, like the tornadoes are conveniently sucking up all the water and then suddenly dropping it. I mean, these things make no sense at all. I mean, what do you guys think about the? Is is the story of the parting of the Red Sea just a complete myth, or does it have? Is it some exaggeration of something that could have actually happened? Well, I think it's a complete myth myself. Certainly, the way they describe it in Exodus, they describe it as God sent a mighty wind that blew a column of water out of the sea and, and left a wall of water on the other side, and the, and the Jews walked through. I mean, in terms of physics, the amount of wind that would require would have vaporized the bodies of the Jews. So, um, obviously that's not scientifically realistic, but it made sense in terms of how the natural world was thought to work when the book was written, right? Um, they thought that's, oh yeah, wind would just blow the water out of the way. That makes sense. God just needs to send the right amount of wind. But, um, there isn't any naturalistic explanation that does make sense. A tsunami 
wouldn't fit the description at all. Certainly not the description in the book of Exodus. Um, and, and wouldn't fit the, what was shown in the movie either. If you, if you know anything about tsunamis, it doesn't behave quite the way that it was shown in the movie. So, yeah, so once again, the, the movie was trying to straddle both lines. They're trying to have it almost like a tsunami, but almost miraculous. It was, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, but I, I don't personally think there's any rational explanation that would fit. It's, it's just a, a wild myth. Well, the, you know, the good old Protestant rationalists who were a, a kind of a transitional form between, uh, orthodox literalism and, and, uh, the Strauss, uh, myth position. These guys in the 18th and 19th centuries and some still today had this bizarre hybrid view that, all right, uh, in a Newtonian world, there are no suspensions of natural law. So, uh, the supernaturalism, forget it. That's an insult to God. What, he didn't get it right when he was designing it the first time? He had to make mid-course corrections? So, no, no, that's superstition. Nonetheless, everything the Bible says happened did happen. They just were in no position to know what was really going on, and we are. And so, that generated often ridiculous, uh, pseudo explanations but there was one that is as far as i know conceivably possible if you insist that this happened and of course there's no reason to do that but in historical times there are attested a couple of instances where you had uh, a temporary land bridge pop mm. up because of uh, seismic activity and gases expanding under the the earth's crust at a particular spot and that's uh, on record uh, a couple of times and and after a while the gases dissipated and and the land bridge collapsed again and so they said well maybe this is what happened uh, the sinai volcano <laughs> business uh it indicates that there was this seismic problem and that the gas has pushed a land bridge up long enough for the Hebrews to go over it. But while they were doing it, the gas were dissipating. And when the Roman chariot, the uh, Egyptian chariots followed them, it, it collapsed. Eh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's absolutely ridiculous, but it would be a heck of a coincidence. Now, another interesting wrinkle in this is that the, uh, the Exodus story is obviously, if you look at it closely, a patchwork, and there are indications that an earlier version of this uh, had it not be that much of a miracle, because what they cross is not the Red Sea, but the Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds. In the Greek Septuagint, for some reason, the translators introduced the idea that it was the Red Sea. Well, the Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds, is obviously a marsh. And it says that uh, they, the Israelites were heavily armed, though in the rest of the story you hear no more about it. And that when the uh, the Egyptian chariots tried to follow them, the wheels were clogged in the mud, and it implies that gave the armed Hebrews the advantage, and they won an upset victory. And uh, so that uh, you still find pretty pronounced traces of that, and then it got magnified more and more. Well, that doesn't mean anything actually happened, but there is evidence of an earlier, simpler, non-miraculous version. Uh, and so, you know, that could have happened, but then you really got no movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what would be interesting is we know, like from Sun Tzu and some other ancient writers, that uh, one of the tactics they recommend is to dam up a river, cross it, and then blow the dam at the key oh. point to destroy your enemy. Um, so you couldn't do that with Red Sea, but you could do that with something like that if you had some sort of river or something that you could cross, um, or, or a marshland that you, if you could get some sort of reservoir that you could flood the marsh suddenly. Um, so you could have this military tactic as your rational explanation. That would be doable, but I, I don't, I don't see that as being plausible with the geography of the time. Mm -hmm. There's a similar thing in Joshua where they uh, carry the Ark of the Covenant over the Jordan dry shod. And just as in the Exodus thing, it actually mm -hmm. does, as you pointed out, say a stiff east wind dried up the marsh. I mean, it's just providence, not miracle. In Joshua, it says that there was some kind of a, of a rock slide upstream 
that temporarily stopped the Jordan and enabled them to cross. And then uh, it uh, the water built up and knocked the rocks down and the Jordan was restored. <laughs> this is what the Bible actually says. It's a stuff. <laughs> Which uh, yeah. implies, yeah. as many other things do, that these stories are much younger than we used to think, uh, and that they may actually be reflections of some kind of uh, Greek rationalism. Well, I mean, Bob, you mentioned the um, the Ten Commandments, and I, I thought that the very end of this movie really felt awkward to me. And I, I heard some people say it felt almost like a parody, you know. But I just I can't see him chiseling the Ten Commandments without thinking of, you know, Mel Brooks or the Ark of the Covenant without thinking of Indiana Jones. I mean, mm. did, did you guys have similar thoughts about the end of this movie? Well, the, I mean, I, I one of the reviewers, I read some Christian reviews of it. And one of the Christian reviewers pointed out that um, in, in that final scene, because they, they like skip ahead like 20 years or whatever uh, and show Moses as an old man. And they're carrying the Ark like Moses is by himself in this wagon with the Ark of the Covenant supposedly behind him in the wagon. But I, as far as I understand, you're not supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant in a wagon. You're supposed to carry it on poles on the arms of certain consecrated priests. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it, it doesn't like really track what Exodus describes. And of course, there's at no point in the movie, there's no pillar of smoke and fire leading the I Israelites. Think the tornadoes uh, the supposed to be that. What's that? I think the tornadoes were. In oh, you think? Yes, that that makes sense. The sort of distant tornadoes during the that one scene. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> Although you weren't supposed to run towards the tornadoes in that yeah, case. Exactly. <laughs> it's not quite the same thing. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's some anachronisms in terms of trying to display the text. But but having that last scene, having Moses carve the Ten Commandments while the child just sort of is talking to him possibly being hallucinated, who knows, that at least was consistent with their attempt to try and make Moses look like he was a schizophrenic hallucinating this child. Um, but it, it did kind of like leave that sort of loose end, like, uh, okay, that's where the movie ends. Like, you know, just, there's a lot more to the book of Exodus than, than, than that scene. So it was, it was just a strange place to end. Um, but I think it would, the idea would work. Like if, if they developed it a little better of having Moses, actually hallucinating this god telling him to write these things down and so the tablets are actually being created by moses and not by god but then he comes down and says god wrote them i mean that that would fit with their whole attempt to sort of naturalize it uh, in uh, exodus 20 uh, he god writes them with his finger uh, but in Exodus 34, the other version of it, uh, it, uh, which they clumsily try to harmonize in the Bible with this thing with the golden calf and Moses smashing the tablets, God then says, come oh, yeah. up and get another copy. But in fact, it's, uh, seven of the commandments are entirely different. But in, at least in that one, this time it does not say God, uh, inscribed them. He dictated them to Moses. So they're kind of, <laughs> combining the two. I yeah, guess. yeah. I mean, Richard, you mentioned Christian reactions. Did you, are there other Christian reactions you read? Like how, how are Christians or Jews reacting to this movie? Uh, I didn't find any Jewish criticisms of it. I mean, I didn't, I could have looked harder, I guess. Um, I think this movie would be very disappointing for Jewish watchers because they cut out almost everything Jewish about it. And that way I think would be kind of offensive personally. But, uh, but I mean, they do have the Jews being sort of, you know, honorable, good, faithful people. But, uh, you know, that's that's the sort of a token throwaway to trying to, you know, make the Jews look good rather than just actually honestly portray their history. Like, like the whole Passover story, I think, is so fundamental to the Jewish faith that to cut out the whole backstory of why the lamb's blood and all of that um, seemed like, why would you do that? Uh, so it's really a movie mainly created for Christians, I think. Um, and maybe liberal Christians, I don't know. Uh, but the Christian reviewers I read said they didn't like all the things that were changed. They didn't like the fact that the Bible story wasn't followed exactly. Um, they were very impressed by the plague scenes, um, whereas I found them boring, <laughs> for an example. But it was mostly the idea of it was offensive to portray Moses as maybe schizophrenic. Um, it was offensive to portray God as a little as a petulant little child. They didn't like that. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that they did that, uh, I, I can understand why they would disappoint or offend Christian viewers. Um, so it, it, it's again, trying to toe that line of not offend or totally offend. You, you should have gone all one way or the other, uh, you know, uh, it's trying to have it, I think halfway uh, makes friends of none really. 
Yeah. Okay, so after after Noah and now this one, I think both got pretty mixed receptions. What do you think the future is for Bible movies? Do you think they'll make some more? Do you think uh, are there any books of the Bible that you're really hoping to see? Well, the Book of Revelation that would be mind blowing. I, I think that would be terrific for from anybody uh, anybody watching that would just get a huge kick out of it. I think they ought to do that if it was done as written. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be, you could do a really good surreal fantasy film on that, uh, for sure. Uh, and, and people would freak out like that. This is the weirdest. This is the bizarrest <laughs> stuff ever. This is the strangest Stanley Kubrick off the walls acid trip imaginable. Uh, yeah, you could make something really great out of that. I, I always thought it would be interesting to see something like Genesis done without cutting out the horrible weird stuff, like actually have it displayed in there. Or do something like some of the Apocrypha would be fascinating, like to do the Lilith story as it was written in Jewish lore. Um, so there's lots of things that I think could be done, but uh, I can't predict what will be done. Oh, by the way, I, I got to put in a plug for a, a book called Eden. It is just fascinating with the, the, uh, the, the it's very poetic and it's almost setters around Lilith. And it, uh, it, it's such a scathing treatment of religion as, as a kind of a substitute for God and the way it led to priestcraft and the oppression of women and so forth. And yet it's a poetic treatment. It's really astonishing. And it's been out of print for decades and soon it'll be available uh, again. I believe the author's last name. Oh, wait a minute. Is it? Oh, boy, I'm forgetting now. But it's called Eden, and I'll probably be putting it up on my uh, website. But I'm sure you'd enjoy that, and, and a lot of people uh, would. Okay, well, actually, while, while we're at this, why don't you just give us your website, Bob, so people can go go look at it? It's not up yet, but will be shortly. It's uh, robertmprice.mindvendor, with an O, O-R, mindvendor.com. All right, cool. So, yeah, so we're... Uh, we should start wrapping this up pretty soon. I did want to give you guys a chance to talk about some of the stuff that you've been up to. Um, so, I mean, like Richard, last time we had you on the show, you were, your book on the historicity of Jesus was, I think, a few months out from publication. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you just sort of catch us up on what's been going on with that since then? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was published by the University of Sheffield this June, uh, last June. Uh, and I've been actually touring the U.S. and Canada, talking about it, uh, having a few formal debates with professors and other experts on the subject. Um, so it's been very interesting. Uh, we're still developing more academic attention and interaction for next year and the year after that. Uh, so it's getting a lot of interest, uh, and it's being well-received so far. We'll see how things go with that. Have any of those debates brought up anything that you didn't already know or that gave you pause or anything like that? No, not really. Um, people get more and more desperate to try and find verses in the epistles of Paul now that I've addressed all the ones that they usually try to use to prove that Jesus existed, and they, they, they collapse on analysis when you look at them closely in context. So now they're, they realize those are a wash. So there's more effort to try and dig, pour through the scriptures, you know, as of Paul's epistles to try and find any verse they can cling to as indicating historicity. And they've found like one or two that you could sort of spin that way, but, uh, but only in, in the most elaborate uh, you know, Rube Goldberg-esque way. Uh, whereas when you, when you look at them again, you look at them, stand back and look at them in context, you say, well, this actually makes just as much sense, if not more sense, on the theory that Jesus began as a revelatory being and, and was only historicized later. Uh, so, uh, so there's just been like a, like a, like two verses like that. Um, but they're just, they don't really give me much pause because you can immediately see, oh, that makes perfect sense on the revelatory being hypothesis. You don't even need a historical Jesus to explain that verse. Uh, and I think it's a lot of that is people are so used to reading the Bible with the assumption of a historical Jesus that they can't switch rails and get onto the idea of, well, let's look at the text with, you know, the completely different perspective. Let's, let's assume that Jesus began as a revelatory being. And that's the only way Paul knew Jesus or any of the first Christians knew Jesus. Look at it from that mindset and you, you'll be blown away at how different and how interesting the epistles of Paul become like the, the meaning of a lot of things he says changes in important ways, uh, which I think is the importance of this theory, because I think this theory might actually be true. I think it's more likely than not the case 
And so it actually transforms the way we understand earliest Christian literature, what the first Christians believed, what Paul actually meant in various verses, what the Christian religion was about, why it was created, what was the purpose of it socially. Um, it, it changes your perspective. So there's a lot of, it, there's importance to it from the perspective of understanding our own history. Uh, not, it's not just a debate over whether Jesus existed or not. It, it really changes the way we understand the formation of Christianity itself in, in, in important ways. And so the book is called On the Historicity of Jesus by Richard Carrier. And, uh, and why don't you give us your website too, Richard? Yeah, everything about me, all my work and everything you can find, books and all on it, uh, www.richardcarrier.info, I-N-F-O. Uh, and also you can find on my About page there. I'm also teaching uh, monthly online courses in both ancient history, biblical history, and philosophy. Uh, every month I teach one course, so if people are interested in following up with that, you could find info there about it. All right, great. And so, Bob, also uh, a couple months ago, you emailed me about this book by Earl Wonderly uh, that you said was really good. I was just wondering if you wanted to say a bit about that, uh, tell people about it. Yeah, that is one heck of a fascinating book. It's called um, An Imperfect Book, which is taken from some Joseph Smith quote. And he shows simply from internal analysis of the Book of Mormon how uh, it is absolutely clear from writing styles, the uh, the uh, looking at the the foreign names and how they don't really reflect uh, the any ancient Hebrew culture, but are obviously coinages by somebody with a limited and repetitive imagination. <laughs> sorts of ways, just sticking with the text of the Book of Mormon, how it has to be. Uh, a modern uh, fictional work by a single author and with techniques and arguments I would never have thought of. It's just mm. brilliant. And the guy is, I think, a lawyer and a statistician or something, but it's uh, it's just endlessly fascinating and, and nails the uh, mummy case shut, I think. <laughs> All right, and then I, I also want to, you know, throw in a recommendation for Bob's The Bible Geek podcast, which, as I've said before, is just one of my favorite podcasts. I listen all the time; it's just great. Um, but yeah, so this, so we've gone on pretty long, so I think we should start wrapping this up right here. But so we've been speaking with Richard Carrier and Robert M. Price. So, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And that was our panel. So, big thanks again to Robert M. Price and Richard Carrier for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Hugh B. Long in Canada, who writes, A writer's best friend. I stumbled on the podcast a few months ago and have since been devouring all the old episodes. Like other listeners have mentioned, the author interviews are fantastic. I'm discovering all kinds of new fiction that I might otherwise have passed on. As a writer, the show is a goldmine for ideas and concepts, as well as inspiration. Keep up the great work, guys and gals. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy rocks. So big thanks again to Hugh B. Long for that great review. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Laura Dirks, Jonathan Jeloni, Zoe Akim, Joanna Evans, George Tricot, and Vlad Levin. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that concludes Season 5 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next year. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.